morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man Welcome to episode 5 of Major Revisions. I'm Grace Wilkinson, professor-elect at Iowa State University. And with me, as always, is John Walter from the University of Kansas. How are you today, John? Doing well. Wonderful. And also we have with us Jeff Atkins from Virginia Commonwealth University. And how are you doing today, Jeff? Grace, I'm doing great, but I have a question for you. Yeah. What do you think of the show The Big Bang Theory? Oh, yeah. I am not a fan. (laughs) Not a fan at all. Me either. Good God. So, so why the hate? So, um, well, that's interesting because when it first came out, I did actually really enjoy watching The Big Bang Theory because it was something that my family and my in-laws really enjoyed. Um, But as I started to watch it more and more, I became really annoyed and sometimes really offended at the way that they were portraying scientists, and in particular how they were portraying female scientists as either being... um, completely, you know, not really having personality. And if they did have personality, it had to be sexual. And that's well, how those they are the only two extremes, Grace. Don't you, aren't you aware? Oh, that, that's actually true. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's how us women scientists are, just black and white like that. Distractingly sexy. Yes. <laughs> so what, what is that? How about your disdain, John? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it kind of falls along similar lines, you know, um, well, I just find the characters annoying. Uh, and one of the reasons that I think I find them so annoying is that they, yeah, they don't look anything like most of the scientists that I know. Um, they seem to really be equating nerd culture and scientific talent. Um, and I don't, you know, mean that as a criticism of nerd culture, but the I think that the many of the scientists that I know identify more as you know athletes or musicians or um, you know makers of you know different types of things in their you know time outside of their scientific work and so it just does wait wait John John are you saying that we look like normal people I'm saying not only do we look like normal people, but we have <laughs> many attributes of other parts of society. Um, you know, I know, you know, growing up, like, among the three of us, you know, we played sports, we were musicians, we, you know, did all these other things that, um, you know, and so I don't, I don't identify with nerd culture whatsoever. Um, and I, I think that... And even... Sorry, go ahead, Jeff. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, it just... As I, as I said before, it just... Their portrayal of scientists doesn't resonate with who I know as scientists. Yeah, and, and I don't think it's to disparage either nerd, geek, or whatever, you know, the culture that it is. It's totally fine like that's totally cool and there is some overlap with that right you know but even like i don't even feel like they even get that right and granted i haven't seen this show in like four or five years there just came a point where i even when it wasn't on, like like i don't know there just came a point where i could not watch it anymore at all 
But they don't even get the geek culture right. Like, they even kind of screw up those references. It's just kind of throwing some stuff together. It's like, oh, I'm wearing a Flash t-shirt. Let's make a Game of Thrones reference, and then this, and this, and this. It's funny. It's very formulaic, which is, it's a sitcom, you know, so I understand. That's fine. <laughs> but it's not, I don't know. I think it's, you know, I was talking to you guys. It's kind of the same problem that I have with Science Friday. Like, I don't think Science Friday is very sciencey, at least in how I conceptualize science. But, there, you know, I mean, there are distinct stereotypes of scientists in movies and culture in general, right? I mean, we're either the bad guy, like the crazy mad scientist who, you know, wants to blow up something or unleash some type of super pathogen. I think that's the premise of that new Inferno movie or something. Yeah, I uh, prefer to identify with that stereotype. You like that one? <laughs> I, like the, I like the adventurer scientist. That's who I prefer. Um... And, and like anything that we've talked about, do you remember that old joke where it's like, oh, the Simpsons have already done it? Yeah. Uh, whenever we talk about anything in culture, like when it comes to this, like dynamic ecology has already done everything that we could ever possibly talk about. And they even did a best, you know, kind of power ranking of scientists in movies or had everybody talk about their favorite portrayals of science, scientists in culture. And sadly, some of the Big Bang Theory did make it on that list, though there was dispute. But my favorite scientist yeah. did not, and that was actually the character Jeff Goldblum plays in The Life Aquatic. <laughs> oh, yes. He's so good. <laughs> I can't think of his, the stupid character's name right now, but yeah, the adventurer. But he's kind of a you know playboy jerk, too. But I like the idea of owning an underground sea lab. It's kind of awesome. But, so I don't know. I'm not... So I don't know if you remember from that, that list from Dynamic Ecology, but did the character of Amy from The Big Bang Theory make that list? I'm, I'm looking it up now. Because the act, <laughs> the actress herself, Mia um, Belak, I think that's how you say her last name. I'm sure that's wrong. Someone can correct me. But she actually has a PhD in neurosciences from UCLA. So she's not only just an actress, but she's a she's a bona fide scientist herself. Um, well, that, is, it, is that the one who was on Blossom? Yes, that's correct, and she plays the character. Yeah, she's an anti-vaxxer, too. Well, yeah. That's what... <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> so, maybe that accounts for the disparity between the portrayal of scientists and her being a scientist. I, I should just say that I, I do want to welcome any type of geek culture as there are people interested in that to our environment and, and target audience, but I'm totally okay with not having anti-vaxxers. Um, so if you guys don't want to listen, that's fine. <laughs> but I can't find this post now anymore. But ah, well, we'll put it on the website. I'll find it, yeah. We'll look later. Wonderful. Well, good. I think... Yeah? Oh, no. Go ahead. I'll say our actual topic today... Yeah. is talking about how to get into grad school in ecology and environmental sciences and maybe why you would want to and what you should consider. Yeah, it is certainly application season, at least at the time that we're recording this. And, of course, it being podcast on the Internet, you can choose to listen to it at any time. But it is application season. Uh, it's currently the end of October, and that's when students are getting ready to be applying for grad school. So maybe we should start by talking just a little bit about our backgrounds and why we decided to go to graduate school or when we knew that the decision was right for us. So John, do you want to get us started? Sure. Um, but what what aspects of background did you have in mind 
Where'd you go to undergrad, John? And why'd you go there? Yeah, so I went to um, Gettysburg College. It's a private liberal arts school in South Central Pennsylvania, and also the same town as the famous Civil War battle, in case anyone was wondering. Um, And I went there... Gosh, I was an awful applier to universities for undergraduate um i didn't really go and visit any place like you're supposed to i just kind of applied some places that i thought were nice and uh, (laughs) a good friend of mine went there and that's basically most of the reason i applied and uh but you know after i got in i did go and visit and really liked uh the campus and liked the environment um so I went, uh, and then when I started, I was actually initially um, double majoring in English and philosophy, and about halfway through undergrad, decided that I was really interested in those things, but couldn't see myself making a career out of them, and um, so I started exploring a little bit more, and really enjoyed an environmental studies course that I took um, and this is kind of a you know unique thing for me because I really didn't like science and math in high school um, as I've mentioned before I failed calculus the first time that I took it mostly for lack of effort um, and uh, but I really I really liked how the science was connected to um, something real world and that was important to me. You know, I'd always been interested in the outdoors and animals and things like that. Um, So this class kind of connected science to something that I cared about really for, you know, one of the first times. Um, And so that kind of just got me started on this path. And, you know, then by the time I was getting ready to graduate, I had done uh, some research in ecology and really um, enjoyed it, and that kind of shaped my uh, my interest in going to grad school. Cool. So, Jeff, how about you? You had a little bit of a different undergraduate experience. Yeah, like I only applied to two schools actually, and. Um... One of them I couldn't afford to go to anyway because I basically had to pay out of pocket. And so the other one uh, was Western Carolina University, and I really just wanted to live in the mountains. And it was the school inside of North Carolina that was the farthest away from my parents. So that's where I applied to. And it worked out great, like a lovely area, wonderful place to live. But, uh, yeah, my undergrad's actually in literature and critical theory with a minor in film studies. I did complete unofficially a a second major in history as well but yeah then i spent five or six years after that i actually graduated i was working in a gas station and just playing music because that was you know that was what i was going to do for the rest of my life and then just kind of stumbled into working with at-risk kids and then spent five or six years doing that uh, moving up to what north carolina calls a qualified mental health professional which basically means i can't render therapy i can't prescribe drugs but I can do most anything else. Like I could commit people and do all that stuff. That was kind of cool. And then I uh, just decided I wanted to go to grad school. 
And I don't even remember, I know, you know, I had always been good at science and it was just kind of something I was interested in. And so I started back at the University of North Carolina Asheville doing a post-bac degree, which was really just me picking a bunch of random classes mm. and taking them and redoing calculus and whatnot. And yeah, like I think it was like, I was really motivated by the fact that, you know, I just had a, I had, had a kid in 2007 and like you, it kind of makes you reevaluate things and start thinking about the future and thinking like, how can I contribute? Where do I see myself doing this? And living near Asheville, North Carolina, I was kind of surrounded by a lot of very progressive people. But not progressive in the same way that I felt that I was. Like, I'm not super crunchy granola. I mean, I have those tendencies. You know, I've worked on, I, you know, I've done internships and worked on organic and farms and alternative farming and all that stuff. But I felt like there was different ways that I could contribute. And that was one of the things I had always just wanted to get a PhD. I just didn't really know in what. So I actually ended my program early, just like taking the GRE, and I did really well in that. And I pulled, oh, I don't even remember, what the, like some website where you could look at like uh, major and PhD like programs. And so I pulled like 110 of them that were all like had ecology in the title. And just like my wife and I went through and picked places we thought would be cool to live. Like I had no idea how to do this, right? Like I had no idea how to apply to undergrad either. And so like I had two reach schools and then it's like four other ones and just kind of applied at random. I actually got lucky because like, you know, working in mental health, like you don't get paid all that much. So we didn't have a whole lot of cash on hand and applications are expensive. And mm -hmm. so I had actually won, it was the year that uh, Duke won the NCAA tournament and my, the office that I worked in had a big office pool, like, you know, 200 people in it from various mental health organizations in Western North Carolina. And I was the one who always picked Duke to win and Duke won. They beat Butler. And so I ended up with enough money to pay for the GRE and six applications, which was cost like seven or eight hundred dollars. Yeah. Wow! So, you know, like I got really lucky on that. And yep, Colorado was the only place that rejected me. So shout out Boulder. <laughs> well, good riddance. Now? Good riddance, exactly. Oh, I applied too. Like, I guess you guys too. Like, we applied in the height of the recession. Yep. And so I went, I went back and looked at that because I was interested. It was like, because I, you know, had looked at like application rates from 2007, 2008. Um, Colorado shot up like some insane amount. Like they normally had like 60 applicants. That year they had like 700. Whoa. Or some like insane number. It was clearly an order of magnitude higher. I don't remember what it was, but I just remember being shocked and being like, oh, I would have rejected me too. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's true. But, it, yeah. It was a but, yeah, very so, competitive time. Yeah, and I, I ended up going to UVA because I really liked my advisor. And uh, I guess that's when we talk about picking schools. I think that's one method that works. But yeah, Grace, what about you? How did you end up where you were? Yeah, so I did my undergraduate degree at St. Olaf College, which is in Northfield, Minnesota, so southern Minnesota. And um, when I was actually looking around for schools, I was determined I wasn't going to go to St. Olaf because all the Wilkinsons had gone there. And I, I are you uh, laughing at my accent? No, I'm laughing at all of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so all the Wilkinsons went to St. Olaf, and so I was determined I wasn't going to go there. And so, um, but my sister convinced me on a college road trip that we should stop and just have it as a comparison to other schools that we'd be looking at on that road trip. And so we went on the school tour. I went begrudgingly. And um, when we finished, I turned to my sister, and I said, well, that's it. I'm going to St. Olaf College. And we turned around, <laughs> and we drove home. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I, I really wanted to go there. And part of that is I wanted that small college experience and um, the opportunity to really get to know my professors and get hands-on research experience. There's a lot of benefits to being at a larger institution that has, say, graduate programs. You get to be in a lab that's doing research. There's usually funding for that research and opportunities for undergrads. And so at a smaller school, you really have to go out and search for those themselves, but they can be a little bit more hands-on than what you might get at a bigger school. So there's sort of a trade-off there. So um, I went in actually wanting to do microbiology because I didn't know any better. And then um, I was quickly swayed when I took <laughs> ecology my sophomore year. But that's really where I wanted to be. And so I started just picking up any research opportunity that I could find in ecology, um, doing independent research projects, um, sort of creating some of my own courses to have tools that I wanted to do, uh, or it, tools and skills that I wanted to learn, things like using stable isotopes. And so, um, yeah, that really drove me. Um, and I, I was fortunate enough that the advisors that I was working with had put together a group of ecology students who were really into doing research, and they essentially ran us like a lab group. We did group projects, and they brought us to two national meetings. So we went to the Ecological Society of America meeting in 2009 and the ASLO meeting in 2010. And those two instances were how I connected with future advisors and how I found my grad school advisor and knew I wanted to go to UVA. Wow. Yeah. So you guys both had opportunities, kind of an undergrad, to do research? Yeah, although it sounds like, Grace, you were a lot more um, convinced early on that you wanted to be an ecologist. You at least wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> well, and as a scientist, you do a lot of writing, so... Yeah, yeah, you, I do a tremendous do amount of writing. So yeah, yeah. It, it definitely paid off, um, but... Yeah, not what I would have guessed I'd be doing if I had, you know, known myself, t like, ten years ago. Yeah. Well, so we kind of shared our paths of getting to grad school. When you guys were looking and when you advise others when they ask you, do you look for big-name schools, famous people? You know, how do you make that decision about who you're going to go and do graduate school with? So I think there's a lot of... There's a lot of noise about the big name school thing, I think. I remember, uh, are you guys familiar with the website Quora? Q-U-O-R-A? Yes. Yeah, so there was a, there's been a couple threads in the academic area on there, people asking about the same kind of question. And one person had a response talking about, you know, how they wish they'd went to a bigger name school, blah, blah, blah. And he was talking about, he's like, my school's only the 80th ranked school or whatnot. And he was talking about Michigan State, which is, like, a huge, totally awesome school. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, like, there's, I think there's clearly a threshold above which a school is quality. But also, not all of the programs at every school is quality. You know what I'm saying? And I don't mean that in a mean way. I'm just saying that certain schools choose to focus on certain areas, and some have very strong areas in ecology, environmental sciences, or hydrology, or geology, that you may not be aware of, <laughs> right? Absolutely. And so, yeah, it's like, I mean, you have good quality schools like Hawaii, it's like a powerhouse in geology, which makes sense, they have a lot of volcanoes there. But, you know, like, they're not, they're not topping the Princeton <laughs> Review thing here, which is no, not to disparage Hawaii, it's a wonderful school and a wonderful place, go Rainbow Warriors. But... Yeah, like, I think this is an area where 
if you're applying and you're you know you're at grad school now, so you're really just focused on that one program, you need to look really closely and figure out what that is, and then try to get into the best school that you can in that section that fits for you personally. But this is a question I'm going to flip to you guys. How do you determine what the best school is? Yeah, that's really tough. And I, I don't think that necessarily, and the rankings can be somewhat informative, like Princeton Review rankings and things like that. But it's also just the reputation within the community, the scientific community that you want to become a part of. And so I think the best thing that you can do is just start asking members of that community where the good schools are. Um, and I, 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 I think I, I kind of want to add on to what you were saying, Jeff. I think the going to a really good school or the um, celebrity of the school maybe matters a lot more when you're a master's student. But especially when oh, you're a yeah. PhD student, it's really the quality of your work and the work that you've done with people that I think speaks a little bit more for itself. You can do really good work and really good science anywhere, but you want to make sure you're going to a place where you're going to get that good training. And it doesn't necessarily isn't going to be at the biggest or the best name school, in my opinion. Um, so to, to follow up on that, when you talk about talking to people in the community, do you guys have any recommendations for, well, how would you do that if you don't have as helpful of an advisor? Because like, you know, I came from a really small state school. You know, my advisor was not doing active research. He was just teaching. And that wasn't really his strong suit. So if there's, how do you, what, what's an alternative way there? Like what's a, you know, a secondary route to finding out that information? without having the, the ability or social capital to be able to ask around like that? Well, I think one place that I would start is the literature. Um, you know, if, if you are, if you're thinking about applying for grad school, at this point, you should have a pretty good idea of what types of topics in ecology and environmental science interest you. And, you know, if you, you know, go through you know, a couple dozen recent papers and uh, that, that are in that area of interest and can take a look at, you know, who are the people that are doing that work and what are their institutions? I mean, those, you know, those things are listed on every paper. Um, that might be a good place to start. Um, another thing, too, is, you know, even if your professor is your you know, faculty advisor isn't that active in the research world right now, you know, they had to get a PhD, you know, and, and they've, <laughs> they've probably had, um, you know, some postdoctoral experience. Um, and so they, you know, those people do have a, uh, a network. It might not be the, the widest network in the world, but that, um, you know, their connections also connect to other networks. And so um, you can always ask to be, you know, put in touch with, um, you know, someone that was a former lab mate or, um, you know, or, or something like that with your advisor. And that person might be able to help you a little bit more even than um, your advisor at your home institution. Yeah, exactly. And I think along those networking lines, any opportunity you have to maybe present the research that you are doing in, as an undergraduate at a, even an undergraduate fair at your institution, at a small regional conference, at a larger conference, 
that kind of networking will also help you in the same regard. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of small regional conferences that are much easier to get to. Uh, you know, ESA has different chapters, like a, the Southeast chapter or whatever, and you can, there's just much more available that it's just harder to find out that information. Um, so I wish it was kind of a resource. I also totally just cold emailed a bunch of people. And generally I find that most scientists pretty nice people like they enjoy talking about what they do so if you email them most of them will you know they either if they don't have time they don't have time or whatever but I had some really good responses and that actually is what ended up working for me was just doing that yeah and I ended up getting so. you know of course part of applying to graduate school is um, identifying potential faculty advisors and I ended up getting a lot of good advice actually from a couple of people who I didn't end up applying to uh, to their group. You know, it didn't end up being a good fit, or they didn't have any openings. But they were willing to, um, you know, talk with me, shoot a couple emails back and forth, and um, I got a lot of good insight from that. And so, yeah, just being willing to put yourself out there a little bit and um, and talk with people. You know, sometimes you get no response sometimes you get curt responses but you also do get people who um, are generous with their time and very willing to um, share their their experiences yeah and, and don't be too um, discouraged by a curt response or a no response I'm sure you guys would say about the same I, you know I, I probably sent out 25 cold emails or so just to potential advisors and heard back from um, maybe two-thirds of them and yeah, you got a you got a good rate there <laughs> that is really high yeah mine was around 50 yeah and, and I think part of that too now that I'm on the other side of it and I've been getting emails because um, I'm searching for graduate students right now um, the lack of a response or a delayed response or a curt response probably has very little to do with you as a student, but professors are really, really busy people. So especially if those people are willing to take the time to talk to you and give you some advice, heed it and use their time wisely. We do really want to help, but we're also very busy people. So we think about the famous person's lab question. Do you need to be in a famous person's lab? I don't think so. I think that you, uh, the goal of a PhD or a master's is an apprenticeship in learning how to do science and do really good science and produce good science. And that doesn't necessarily happen with only famous people. And in fact, famous people could be really busy. And so you might not get as much one-on-one um, -on -one mentorship that you were hoping to get. So it might not actually be a good fit for you. Yeah, I mean, I would say that if you... If a famous person can give you, you know, equal time, equal mentorship, opportunity, um, you know, just as good research support and, and, and stuff like that as a less famous person, that maybe the famous person is the way to go because networks are really important in, um, in science, just like any other field. Um, but I think it's often the case that you know famous people are really busy, and famous people aren't necessarily the best mentors out there. And so, um, you know, for me personally, I I made the choice when I was 
choosing to go to UVA and to work with Kyle Haynes, um, I had an opportunity to join the lab of a of a more senior, um, more well known scientist, and um, I I chose to go um, with with Kyle, um, where I was his first PhD student, um, in part because I got a really good sense that I was going to be a priority to Kyle, um, whereas. I didn't get the sense that I was going to be a priority um, in that more senior, um, more famous person's lab. Yeah, so that brings up an interesting question, John. Um, at least when I was applying, I got the advice not to apply with a new person because they were maybe a little bit greener and, and wouldn't have their mentorship figured out. How did that work out for you? You know, I think it worked out pretty well. Um, you know, like I said, for me, the biggest trade-off was um, whether I would be a priority for a person, and I was for Kyle. And um, so I, you know, I felt like that was that was worth it. Um, and I think that you know, Kyle and I had a really good relationship as far as you know, student and mentor relationships go. Um, I would say that actually the, the, the drawback that the only real drawback that I see, um, is that, you know, I think that a lot of people who are, you know, my stage and who have really high research productivity went into more established labs where there were, you know, projects that they could plug into right away and a lot of ready collaborations um, and I think that if there was any disadvantage at all to um, going to a lab where I was um, the first PhD student it was that um, those types of opportunities weren't ready made for me uh, and so I think that um, that I put a lot of effort into um, developing collaborations outside my lab, um, which is of course a good experience. Um, but I think, um, you know, maybe, um, it can happen more naturally if you do step into, um, a lab that is a little bit more established. Um, but, you know, of course also, um, where you have good mentorship opportunities. You, you bring up a really good point that I think maybe we could address in a follow-up uh, episode that we could entitle How to Get the Most Out of Grad School. And when you talk about peer collaborations, because we've actually all done that. We, we never all three, I think, been on the same project, but we've all like worked with each other in iterations of things. Um, uh, yeah, that would be a great idea. Yep. Yeah, like you, you're there. I don't think you should view your peers in grad school as competitors, per se, but also as future collaborators. And you're all in it together, and you can actually get a lot more done and accomplished if you create a sense of community and actively work to do that. So it's, you know, anyway. Absolutely. I think the, I think the advantage of having a younger advisor is also that the, statistically they're likely to live longer and that's going to be beneficial to you, I think, in the long run, right? 
just because they're going to be around longer, you're going to be able to... You know, part of it is networking, but science is also kind of like this weird Ponzi scheme where you do you build this like, giant web of connectivity. And so if you have a you know younger advisor to a certain degree, there is some type of advantage there in some respects that you know they're going to be around longer and help with collaborations, assuming that you have a positive relationship with that advisor. And that said... If you can apply to an advisor and not a program, because there are differences, some programs you have to apply to a program. In some places, like UVA, you have you apply to an advisor, I believe, right? At least that's what I did. Yeah, we applied uh, to the program, but our application was sponsored through by an advisor, and we wouldn't necessarily yeah. have been accepted if we didn't have an advisor that was sponsoring it. Yeah, the, so choosing that advisor, if you can, is probably the most important decision that you have going into this that person is going to be around for a long time they're going to be the one writing you reference letters for jobs they're going to be the one helping you get funding and making sure that you get paid while you're in grad school that decision is really important and a lot of time you know sometimes you don't have enough information going in so i think we talk later about on-campus visits and whatnot you really that's what you should really be focusing on, I think, more so than the name of the school. So. Absolutely. So you, you brought up the topic of funding, and that's, of course, something that can be a barrier to getting into graduate school um, because the advisor of the program that you're applying to needs to have funding. Um, so in case any of our listeners aren't aware, if you're going to graduate school in the sciences, whether a master's or a Ph.D. program, but particularly a Ph.D. program, Funding is provided to you in the form of um, tuition coverage, usually some sort of benefits, such as like health benefits, as well as a stipend. Sometimes a very tiny stipend, but it's a stipend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and sometimes you do have, you will have uh, teaching responsibilities. This varies wi wildly across schools. You know, in, um, you know, I taught every semester, so basically... 11 semesters while I was at UVA ended up with a total of like 13 classes that I taught, maybe 15 classes because I taught two some semesters. Some schools you don't have to teach that much. Some you never teach. But that sometimes factors into your stipend as well. Like you would have you know, maybe part of it's paid from research, part of it's paid from teaching. So you need to be aware kind of what your teaching responsibilities are. If that's something you're interested in, uh, I think it's a huge benefit. I think it's something that everyone should should do a little bit of. Um, and then, you know, some places you don't get paid in the summer either. So you need to be aware of that. And those are definitely questions you should ask. Yeah. Another thing to be aware of is that the structure of that funding is, can, can vary a lot. Um, oh yeah. I think it, I think it's pretty common among the top programs to guarantee funding for five years um, for a PhD student. But um, sometimes it's normal to TA two courses a semester. Sometimes it's normal to have several years where you don't TA at all, but um, in other years you are TAing a lot. Um, UVA did something that I think is actually really nice where most people TA'd one course a semester. Um, and there's some variance around that depending on funding. Um, but I think that that's a pretty 
it's a pretty manageable load for TAing where you can still get um, your coursework done, your research done, uh, while also doing that. Um, and I think that that is a lot nicer than other universities where maybe you uh, will have no TA responsibilities sometimes, but um, two or more uh, courses or labs that you're TAing at other times. So it just, it just balances it out. Um, and that's meant less as a, as a plug for UVA, um, although <laughs> I think we all appreciate UVA, um, as it's meant as just a, you know, just something to be aware of, something to think about um, when you are applying. Um, I think not a lot of people know or are um, feeling bold enough to explicitly ask about funding situations, but that's a really important thing to, to know um, going into uh, a program certainly by the time you're uh, accepted and deciding where you want to go. Yes, absolutely. So you sort of touched on different kinds of programs and the way they're set up and whatnot. Um, and one of the biggest things that can be distinguishing is between a master's of science, so an MS, or a PhD. Um, I think we all went straight into a PhD from our undergraduate degrees. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so uh, none of us have masters, but nope. <laughs> do you guys get the impression that that's common, or is it becoming more common? I don't think it's that common. And when I had that realization, I thought that was really strange that all three of us had done that. But but is it? Is it? What do you guys think? Are we just that awesome? Well, well let me say I, mean, I don't we are think regardless. it's. <laughs> Um, I don't think it's unusual in ecology okay. for people to uh, to go through straight to a PhD um, without a master's, um, but I couldn't honestly tell you um, statistically whether it's more common to get a master's first um, or a PhD. Um, I think there are you know, benefits to each um, that you guys can probably speak to as well. Yeah. Well, so I, I think... We'll I think... Be... Go ahead, Jeff. No, 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 you go ahead. Go I would say with the increased funding crunch, um, that, I mean, there's always kind of been a funding crunch, but it's been getting more and more dire. Um, I think that has led to some schools changing the way that they fund their master's programs, and so um, it's become more attractive to just going for the PhD because you get full funding in that way. And so maybe that's increasing the rate of people that just go straight to the PhD and bypass the master's, but it really would be interesting to see the stats on that, as John said. I, I think from the, the choice perspective, so if I'm talking to an undergrad who's looking at going to grad school and asking the question, should I go for a master's or should I go for a PhD? I think if you can, I don't think you should go and get a PhD unless you can only imagine your life with you having a PhD. You, you're making a big commitment. And I think that's something that needs to be really thought through, right? Like you're, you're committing yourself to it. It's an exhausting process. It's, you know, it's really difficult. And that's why, you know, what is it something like only 50% of people who, uh, you know, start PhD programs, finish PhD programs. I'm surprised that number's that high. 
you know, some people are smart and they drop out and they go do other things and they don't just bang their head against the wall like we do. Yeah, that's very true. You know, if you just if you just want it and you just really focus like, hey, I want a career in working in ecology and environmental sciences, uh, you know, just doing research, you know, maybe just a master's is totally fine and it's totally legit. It depends on what it is that you want to do. And if you want to actively be involved in kind of, you know, I guess you should really think about what the outcome would be if you were to get a PhD. Like, do you want to go on and do you want to try to get like a tenure track job? Um, you know, in that case, you need a PhD. Do you want to go teach ecology and also do research and work at like a smaller university? You need a PhD to do that. You know, you kind of think about, I guess, think about why you want to do it and what your outcome is. You know, if you want to get a master's, like, yeah, do go get a master's, period. Because, you know, at the end of a master's, you can always go and get a PhD. Totally fine. If anything, I think the master's has the advantage of you not only get a paper or two out of that, you also get a lot of practical job skills that I think you also do get out of a PhD as well. But that you also kind of build your research network, right? Like, if you go to undergrad somewhere, then go somewhere else for a master's, and then go even, like, a third place for a PhD, that's, like, three places that you've kind of built you know, a basis where you have roots, where you kind of can always go back to, and you've, you know, broaden your network, and that's totally fine if you have the time to do that. You know, I started out, you know, six, seven years later than most people applying to grad school, so I didn't really want to have time, or I didn't have time to get a master's and then go and do a PhD. I knew, like, that's where I wanted to be, and, you know, that worked for me, but it doesn't, you know, everyone's different. Yeah, absolutely, and when I'm advising students, I usually, and they're asking this question, should I get the master's or the PhD, I usually advise them to go look at job boards and look at the jobs that are available right now and see what the desired qualifications are and really let that, you know, find, think about what your dream job's going to be. Do some research on jobs that are out there, jobs that would be your dream jobs, jobs that are acceptable to you, things you would never want to do in a million years. And then look at their desired yeah. qualifications and make their, your decision that way. And that's not to undersell a PhD. I'm just saying it's really difficult. And, you know, we're working, I think, in the field on being able to show that getting a PhD and working towards alternative outcomes than just a traditional tenure-track job at the Research One University. That's not where most people end up. And, you, you know, I think people need to be aware of that going in, but we also can shape the program and the training that you get during that process. I mean, you get a lot of valuable skills in the process of earning a PhD that, are difficult to get anywhere else, or maybe not even possible to get in any other, you know, any other place. But there's a trade-off too. I mean, you end up being someone who is hyper focused in one area. So you know, yeah, it's just true. it's kind of a trade-off. Yeah, I think, I think kind of how I think about this, and and I have you know this um, perspective partly because my partner has a master's or is completing her master's degree um, in a similar field and really found over the course of completing that that she doesn't like doing independent research but she loves learning about science um, and that's what motivated her to go to grad school in the first place um, but there's a big difference between loving learning about science and loving doing independent research and if you don't love doing independent research, there's probably no reason to get a PhD. And if you don't know that you love doing independent research, um, or if you just love 
learning about science, um, maybe doing a master's degree first is a good idea to help you build those skills and help you to have that kind of personal, um, you know, personal growth, personal realization about what it is that um, really makes you tick. Um, I knew before, I knew that I loved ecology, that I loved doing independent research. And so I kind of went into things kind of planning always to get a PhD, but then taking some time to figure out what it was I was going to get a PhD in. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point, John. And, and I think one other um, thing between the master's and the PhD that we haven't brought up is if you apply to a PhD program, you're doing a PhD and you decide you don't want to do it anymore, as Jeff kind of brought up, people leave. And there's also the option at some institutions of doing something that's called mastering out or getting a master's degree yeah. instead and stopping where you're at. And that's totally fine, too, because you're taking time and resources. You're taking up your own time, and you're doing something that you're not enjoying doing. And so stopping at a master's, even if you're in a Ph.D. program, I think totally acceptable. So specifically for those listening, if they're not completely sure what the difference is between the letters, is that generally for a master's of science, for a master's degree, you produce a thesis that has usually one to two chapters of original research. And you have to present that in front of your committee, which is a committee is usually made up of your major advisor, along with two to three other people within the program, maybe somebody from outside the program. There are some options where you can get a master's of arts degree. Masters of arts degrees in environmental science and ecology are often not funded by the department, meaning that you would have to pay for it yourself. And a lot of times there, you're doing reviews of existing research and not conducting original research yourself. And a PhD is different in basically the extent of it and also kind of the intensity. PhDs are usually three to five chapters of original research. So sometimes it'll be like one large project that has multiple components. Occasionally you're beginning to see now PhDs that are a series of small projects strung together. And not only do they include a defense of that research, but they also typically involve some type of qualifying or comprehensive exams, which are usually given sometime during the second year of study. And, you know, those vary in intensity. Some universities have a set type of exam that everyone takes. And, you know, the experience that we all went through is that you're given a written exam that's conducted by your committee that usually, no lie, takes somewhere between 8 and 20 plus hours to complete. They would typically be very in-depth questions. And then, usually a week to a week and a half later, you will have an oral exam with your committee where you go in and you kind of sit and they, get, they will drill you. And the point of it is basically to help you find kind of the limit of your knowledge, right? And they want to make sure that you're ready to kind of move on. Is that a fair assessment of the differences? Or do you guys think of anything that I'm missing? Yeah, I think that's a great assessment. John, did you think of anything? Nope, I agree that that's spot on. And I think, and in, in usually, um, I don't know, you, you, and after your defense, it's usually made very clear to you, like, hey, you're a doctor now people are going to take the stuff that you say seriously, you should understand the levity of that, or not the levity, but the, 
you know how important that is <laughs> like the seriousness of that the, the gravity <laughs> is i think the word gravity is for. the word i'm looking for not the levity that you're <laughs> ridiculous yeah um totally just contradicting what i'm saying it's like we're talking about big name schools and we all went to a huge name school <laughs> it's, it's like fine. but uh, i guess what where do you we talk about different schools and different programs but how much did you guys factor in where you wanted to live? Did you guys do that? Well, my philosophy has always been when I was applying to, from undergrad, grad school, postdocs, you know, and jobs, was spread, cast my net wide and see what okay. I caught. And then from there, I would decide, based on the opportunities, if I could factor in geography. It's definitely been something that I wanted to factor in but I've always cast my net wide. Now that's not necessarily an approach that everyone can take because as Jeff mentioned before, these applications and things can be expensive. There, we also had to factor in, we had kids. We had one kid at the time and we were actually, did not find until after I had accepted that we had a second kid on the way. So, you know, we would go and visit places and think about, you know, is this a place where we can have a family as well? And not all universities and not all communities are as welcoming as others. And so that, for us, that was a big consideration. And, you know, that there are multiple reasons, I'm sure, for many people that that would be consideration. You know, I mean, honestly, even from, like, a simple thing as such as, like, climate, right? Like, a lot of ecology, environmental science schools are in really cold places, usually. <laughs> so, you know, can you survive that? I mean, there's a lot of good schools in the Northeast, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, you know, Montana. Well, it's cold, man, you know? Yeah, and on the <laughs> other hand, like in Arizona, I went and interviewed down there, and they said, yep, you could definitely go out and do your research, but you got to leave at like 3 o'clock in the morning and be done by 11 because it just gets too hot. And I thought, <laughs> shut it down, uh-uh. So, you know, if it's... Because one of the things I think also important in grad school is that, you know, you need a hobby or something. So... You know, if you like to go bike or you like to go run, it's hard to run in, in the winter in Maine, you know, <laughs> maybe, I don't know, not to disparage Maine, I like Maine a lot, but I'm just saying, you know, and you can't run in the afternoon in Arizona, um, so I don't know, you gotta survive, so you gotta, you gotta find the right fit, you can't just live in the lab all day. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if, if you have, if you have the luxury of, you know, being single and you know, relatively unencumbered, um, you know, it probably makes sense to, to cast your net pretty widely. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have to, if you're doing a PhD, you know, you're going to probably spend, you know, five years there. You don't want to be miserable. Yeah. So, um, so I think you should take into account location. Uh, I certainly did, um, not in a totally rational way, but, <laughs> did you count like the number of breweries or something and you're like yeah i want to move here <laughs> no it's just kind of like an ad hoc kind of like oh this place sounds nice um okay yeah well one thing i think it's important to consider because there are, are some really good universities in, in cities that are really expensive to live in if you you know if you don't have the luxury of having like a trust fund or something you know, or maybe someone to live with or share there, your, your stipend may not be enough to survive sometimes. <laughs> There's, 
you know, there's a, a really nice university on the West Coast, just south of San Francisco. We don't have to mention names specifically. You know, we're, I know people who pay several thousand dollars a month in rent and who, you know, like they make, their stipend is twice, I think, almost what mine was in grad school, and they barely survive on anything. So, you know, I don't know. You can yeah. factor that into. Cost of you living can... is definitely a, a big deal, for sure. Jeff, I was wondering when you were looking at schools, and, you know, you're talking about, of course, you have the considerations of your family and wanting a good community to raise your family in. How did you go about investigating that? Who did you talk to? We actually would just, we we had the luxury of having to take a trip to Pennsylvania at one point, and then we drove through a couple places. And that worked out really well, like just being able to visit. You know, the Internet's a wonderful thing, too. And just kind of trying to visit and get the feel of it. You know, I applied to Colorado because my brother-in-law went to school out there. And so my wife had spent a lot of time in Boulder. And that seemed like, you know, that was a really good fit. And we we mostly focused on looking at universities that were not in large cities. Both of us are from, you know, really rural areas anyway, so it would have been weird. I mean, I can't. Uh, for you know, I have a PhD and I can't understand a bus system to save my life for some reason. So that wasn't really going to work. We honestly, you know, I grew up and I was born in the South, but I tried to get out of the South. <laughs> so, you know, that's um, I ended up in Virginia, which is kind of like the crossing area in between, I suppose. Well, you're closer to the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. You know, we're the the Mid Atlantic. It is noticeably different, though. It's the South really begins somewhere about Danville, Martinsville, Virginia. You know, for those of you who are uninitiated, like approximately South Virginia is where the real South begins. But yeah, like we looked at Vermont, looked like a place we were were interested in. We were interested in uh, Penn State, actually. Uh, Maine was one that we looked at. Um, Generally, like kind of like small, mid sized towns. We looked at Colorado, and there were a couple other ones that were kind of long shots, but I don't think we ended up applying there either. So we were just trying to find, like, the best fit between a really good program and what I wanted to go do, but also a place that we could kind of see ourselves. And there were a couple places that just just weren't good fits, and it was just, you know, because of us. Like, it wasn't any knock on anyone in particular. And I just also, like, I wanted to work with people who I liked, and so I was applying to work with people in places we didn't, we wanted to live. So it was like, you know, like a whole bunch of factors kind of filtered down to we ended up with, you know, a list of five or six schools that seemed like nice places. Mm. Sure, that makes sense. Well, it seems like we're kind of coming to the end of our time here today, guys. So I would recommend that maybe, um, now that we've kind of talked about how you pick a graduate school, next time maybe we'll discuss um, that actual application process and the on-campus visits, which is really a whole other bear within itself. Oh, yeah. And then how to write those letters, get your CV, and take the GRE. Yeah, yeah. Love the GRE. (laughs) I took the GRE when I had swine flu the first time. It did not go well. (laughs) (laughs) I No lie, GRE is the only reason I got into grad school. I have uh, very mediocre grades, and um, but I test really well, so (laughs) that was a big help to me. Hey, before we sign off, did you guys have anything in the world that you wanted to share with everyone? Um, I'll just point out that, you know, there are a lot of other good resources on this topic. Um, We'll post these on our website uh, as we kind of come across them. But another one that comes to mind is that there's a great post um, 
on the Dynamic Ecology blog. It's an older one from 2013. Um, but there's there's a lot of information out there about applying to grad school in ecology um, that can be helpful um, in understanding the process and decision making about um, where to go and how and when and why and all those great things. Uh, I also wanted to throw out there, if you're not already following it, you should. The Ecolog, E-C-O-L-O-G listserv. You see it as ecolog-l. It's hosted by the University of Maryland. There are lots of people who are posting kind of open positions for master's students, PhD students, um, even postdocs, and also just jobs as well, like related to specifically to ecology. You, you stay in a lot better job applying to a place that has an open position that's already funded than you do just kind of ad hoc to a, a university. True, true. All right, well, Thanks for listening today, and uh, you can always check us out online at uh, majorrevisions.weebly.com, on our Twitter, major underscore revisions, and of course we can be found on SoundCloud and now on iTunes, so go check us out there um, and give us a review and a like. And so with that, we'll... Yeah. (laughs) If you don't like it, please don't give us a review. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that, we'll... uh, Catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye now. It's yours. Whose world is this? The world is yours. The world is yours. It's mine. It's mine. Whose world?